All right, welcome uh, to another From the Bench live episode. We are very excited to have Kate Wetmore with us and Megan Williams um, to to dive deep into kind of what we're all watching and, and to tell to tell their stories. So, uh, Kate, Megan, welcome to the show. Uh, why don't you just introduce yourselves and, and kind of tell tell your story of of how you got to the position that you currently have? Awesome. Well. First of all, thank you for inviting us to come talk. And I think these conversations are super important right now. So I just want to start right off the back by thanking you guys. Um, my name is Megan Williams. I'm currently the director of operations at UNC. Um, I started as a student athlete at the University of Nebraska. Um, was there for seven years because I went on to be a graduate assistant, got my master's there. Um, and then took a job at Princeton as the director of operations under head coach Courtney Banghart, decided I wanted to get into administration. So I actually left for a year and worked at UNCG um, as the assistant director for internal operations. Uh, Courtney got the job at UNC as the head coach and called me and um, said, I need you to be a part of this with me. And so now I'm here at UNC. So a really blessed path a lot of really great leaders and a lot of really great opportunities. Um, I started at a division two. I played at Adelphi University way back in the day. Um, I went on to get my master's at Columbia University um, where I was a GA for two years, then went back to my alma mater to coach. So my first coaching job was at a division two at Adelphi. Um, then I got this job, I guess it was six years ago. Um, and I just kind of worked my way up and, and I've been at UNCG um, for six awesome years. Um, have a wonderful boss, Trina Patterson, and um, you know, just really grateful to be in the profession and, and grateful to you guys for inviting us here and having this conversation. So um, part of the reason I think, you know, we, we've talked and obviously um, a lot of the things that are going on right now, um, you guys had the unique experience of attending uh, rally in Raleigh, and um, just kind of want to get an idea of what uh, maybe what that was like uh, to give to some folks that haven't had an opportunity to attend and and just see what the the uh, outpouring of support is right now for uh, for all the people that have you know had to deal with this um, these tragedies on a on a personal level as well as a societal level. Yeah. So um, when I think to start, we've kind of been in this movement together for a while. For those of you who don't know, um, Kate and I are actually engaged. This is my fiance. Um, we work in the same profession. And so we have had these conversations for quite some time. Um, we were long distance for a while when things like the women's marches and other different types of protests were going on. So we didn't have uh, the ability to protest together. So when this opportunity, sad, sadly an opportunity came for us to show our support, um, we, we jumped at it. Um, and, you know, we got in the car and as a black woman, you feel a lot of emotions during this time, I think. Um, there's this need to want to make an impact. There's this need to want to get rest. There's this need to do self-care. There's all of these different needs that you're feeling all at once and consistently unpacking um, in your day to day. But one thing that I have always taken great pride in is that 
when my name is called, I'm going to be there. And so this opportunity presented itself. Um, we got in our car, we drove to Raleigh. And um, as we got out the car, lots of mixed emotions. You really don't know how you're going to feel um, amongst that crowd until you get there. And so even the steps getting there was just a lot, um, a lot of fear. Um, this could turn ugly, you know, this could go left. We've seen it happen on the TV over and over again, whether it's tear gas, whether it's rubber bullets, whether it's real bullets, like there's just so many different directions that it could go. So initially there's a sense of fear. Uh, I'm, I could, something could actually go wrong and I could possibly lose my life. And then that fear turns into this immense amount of power that you're doing something that is bigger than you, that you are part of something bigger than you. Um, then there's just a sadness that we even have to be doing this, that we have to be crying and, and holding each other in the streets just for me to be considered as equal as she is in this country. Um, and then there's you go home and you sit in your face with it. She looks at me as a black woman and I look at her as a white woman and we look at each other and she's disheartened that I have to go through this and I feel the pain of having to go through this every day. So um, initially when I walked into the protests, people who know me know that I am loud and rambunctious and I really like to be a loud voice in the room um, with a lot of energy. And so in my head, I was going to be that girl, the one that was starting the chance, that one that was a part of the chance. And when I got there, it was so heavy that I just sunk into myself um, and cried. I cried and I didn't say much at all. Um, the beauty in that moment was that the white people in the crowd, along with the black voices, along with alternate races were screaming so loud that I didn't necessarily have to use my voice. My presence was enough. And I think that's really what the shift is and what's making this move so different than what we felt in the past is that it's not just black people screaming for themselves right now. Everyone else is screaming so that we can just be there and be present and be a part of the fight. But we have other voices speaking up and we just need more of those. I mean, even though we have a lot, there's just so much room to grow. Um, and so that was really my experience in the protest was just a silence and an inner working and being present and being there and feeling whatever emotions I needed to feel and being able to feel those, feel those emotions. Uh, emotions. Um, and part of that, you know, was with her help. I mean, anytime there was a police officer, she was stepping in between me and them, literally blocking me. And so I think that's what a white ally is. Um, and I saw that, you know, from other people in the crowd who I don't know if it was their partner, but I, I can assume that it was just their friend who was willing to step between them. And I think that's really powerful. Um, there was a sense of guilt that came toward the end just because um, we left at curfew. And she asked me if I wanted to stay. Um, she was ready to stay and I, didn't want to stay. I said, I, I'm ready to go. And so I think, again, as a black woman, you feel like you're letting 
your people down. You feel like you're letting the movement down because you're not staying past curfew, curfew because you're not pushing the limits because there isn't a riot um, because that's what's gotten us this far. Um, so I had to sit with those emotions for about a day and kind of tell myself, you know, you being there is enough. And there's a lot of different ways that black people are having to protest in their everyday life. Um, when I go across the street in our predominantly white neighborhood and people don't even acknowledge my existence, I'm protesting. They're uncomfortable now. Um, and so in some aspects, me living my day-to-day -day life at this point is a protest and it's heavy and it's a lot. And so giving, I think black people giving themselves grace in these moments to feel and be whatever they need to be is very, very important. And I had to give myself that grace um, at the end of the night. Um, but again, in a, a really great show of white allyship, um, I handed her the keys because it was an 8 p.m. curfew and we were getting in the car at 7.59. And I knew that if I drove, we had a higher possibility of getting pulled over and things looking ugly because that's what we've seen. Um, and she said, give me the keys, I'll drive, no problem. Um, so I think, I think white allies are needed right now and that's what's happening. Um, I am really lucky because I get a really good example of what a white ally can be. Um, but I think it started with conversations that we had three years ago. You don't just become a white ally overnight. It's it's time. There's um, an amount of work that has to go into it that I think some people just aren't willing to put in. Let me, uh, Megan, that was fantastic. I mean, just giving some ideas and um, a couple of things that were, were interesting that you said in there was that, you know, obviously your ranges of emotions as you as you came were certainly important, you know, starting with fear. But it almost sounded like you were able to find almost a safe space there. You know, obviously with Kate being able to be there for you as a, you know, protector using, you know, her privilege in, in, that, in that way to protect you, but also the fact that you didn't have to be the one, you know, throwing it out there. Um, and I think those are important things for, for white people, especially to understand that, you know, there's creating safe spaces are an important piece to what we have to do to be allies to people of color. So I just, that point was huge. And then, you know, Kate, from your perspective, I mean, obviously it's going to be different than, than Megan's, but um, can you share some of your perspective from, from the time around? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely powerful to see people coming together um, for the right reasons. And you can feel that power for sure. Um, and there was a lot of positivity that came from it. But I mean, I think what I found disturbing is you've got these police officers kneeling with the group um, when we were there and hugging people and shaking hands. And those are the same uh, officers that, you know, threw tear gas at those same protesters the night before were beating them with shields and, and batons. And um, I just, you know, that's an odd thing, you know, to be looking at these officers and just wondering, like, how can you be part of an institution like that, you know? So I think that was um, disturbing for me to see that sort of switch that they flip, you know, when the cameras are on and, and it's daylight and knowing what happened the night before and what's happening all over the country. 
Um, you know, but again, it's this is about the people coming together and, and the movement. And there was a lot of um, a lot of power in that and a lot of positivity. Obviously, this is how change is, is starting here. So, um, you know, I think, like Megan said, it's important. Obviously, she's my partner and, and I always want to support her and, and protect her. But that's also what all white allies should be doing now, whether it's your partner or a stranger next to you at the protest. Or if you're not at the protest, you should still be doing things. Um, and that's the conversations that we're trying to have with our circles and anybody that will listen pretty much. Yeah, we. I had this conversation with Brian uh, yesterday. I was torn um, because our recruiting coordinator, Danielle Snellgrow, uh, now Danielle Grant got married, um, but she invited our staff as well as anyone else here in Salt Lake City uh, to a rally last night. And, you know, amongst this COVID-19, uh, it hasn't gone away. Here in Salt Lake City, the numbers have been climbing the last five days uh, to all-time highs. And my wife, who had her thyroid removed about a year and a half ago, is falls in that category of, you know, high risk in terms of, you know, she cannot afford to contract this virus. So, you know, I'm torn between like, I feel I need to show up, you know, enough talk, like you gotta kind of put in action behind the talk. And at the same time, as Brian said, my day one, my ride or die <laughs> is in a position where, um, you know, her health is of the utmost importance. And then we have two daughters, eight years, eight years old and six years old. So I wrestled with it for, you know, a day and a half. We came to the decision where, you know what, let's all go, let's all maintain social distancing and let's show up. Like we just, we need to do our part and show up. Um, and so we did. And what happened from going to the peaceful protest forced us as parents to address and have conversations that we probably weren't willing or ready to with an eight-year-old and six-year-old. But at the end of the day, I actually felt so much better because I'm not trying to protect my children of the reality. I'm actually opening it up. Like right now, all they know is the love and support we have in our household, the love and support that they see me interacting with our minority kids, with our international kids. So that's all they know, you know? And so I thought it was very important to get them out there um, and have those brutal, honest conversations. And, and it was, it, to me, it was just kind of a sense of like, I felt better um, just because my children were reading the signs and, you know, like the, a bad word to them is killing. And I'm like, okay. And so I had to kind of do a little bit of explaining, but not, you know, tiptoeing around the truth, giving them the truth of what is our reality right now. Now, those conversations with my children are one thing. What can you guys speak on in terms of what are the necessary conversations that college coaches with their platform, with their, I think, their responsibility to educate young men, young women, what are the necessary conversations uh, through your eyes that need to take place? Um, well, for me, um I was on a panel a few days ago and 
I spoke to the white coaches um, that were attending the meeting and I'll do the same thing here. I think it's important that we don't just leave it at making a declaration on social media. Um, I really have a problem with that, especially in coaching. Um, it's not fair to the kids. They deserve more. The kids deserve more. The world deserves more than that. Um, that's less than the bare minimum. And so I think folks are saying something, you know, I stand with my players or Black Lives Matter, and there's not the action step. Allyship needs to be an action word. Um, and that can look like a lot of things. Some people can't go to protest because of health reasons. And they, you know, you can't necessarily knock them for that, but there are so many other ways within your small circle to start, your family and friends. Are you having uncomfortable conversations? Are you addressing microaggressions? Are you cutting ties with people if they just won't let up? You know, those are sort of in your, your inside circle. And then beyond that, there needs to be the next step, which is, are you researching your city council members and your DA and your mayors? And are you then voting? Um, are you making calls? Are you signing petitions? Are you donating money? Are you researching and are you listening? And that's the biggest thing. It's also, I think, you know, being an ally is not like a destination. <laughs> it's a practice and it'll never stop. And we need to keep listening and learning and educating ourselves and then listening again and listening again and, and shut up and listen more. Um, I think to me, that is, an absolute necessity if you're going to coach women's basketball, men's basketball, football, where you have a lot of black athletes. And if you don't do that, then shame on you and you should get out of the profession. So, I mean, I feel very strongly about that. I think a lot of people are, you know, posting on Twitter, posting to the gram and then calling it a day like, oh, I'm here. You know, I did my part. No, actually, you're doing a disservice because you're you're misleading people. You're misleading your kids to think that you're there for them. You want to ask them to run through a wall for you come November, December, but you don't actually have their back. And I have a problem with that. And so I think, and I don't say that in, you know, and I'm not coming at anybody, but it's not, it's not hard to pick up your phone and, and call. It's not hard to sign a petition. Our computers, the internet, our phones make it so easy. There's no excuse now. There's no excuse not to educate yourself. Ignorance now is a choice because nobody can open their social media and not see something. So it's a choice. And, and so, again, you have to do not one thing. We need to keep doing multiple things and then ask, what else can I do? And it, that needs to continue till forever, in my opinion. Yeah, I'm, I think similarly, if, <laughs> if you want to start running a new defense on your team and you don't know it, you go figure it out. If, whether you have black kids on your team or you don't, it is your responsibility to seek the information. And it's not to say that some black people are not problematic in the in the progress of this. I, I don't believe that either, because I equally believe that there are black head coaches, black assistant coaches who are tweeting, and that's it. That is also problematic. Um, I think that you also have to take the extra step. These kids also look to us to provide resources. So if you've had the discussion with your student athletes, but you haven't followed up with, here are some other ways that we can impact. Here are some protests that are going on. Here are some donations that you can do. Do you wanna collectively create donations as a team? Those are the conversations that are lasting impacts that can get your student athletes involved and make them also aware of how to affect change. Have you told your kids how to register to vote? 
have you been willing to move a practice so that they can vote? <laughs> Uh, we get so caught up in the basketball side of it and world the world is just so much bigger and these are the moments where you have to challenge each other and as an assistant or anyone lower I am someone who is on our support staff I've worked for my head coach now I'm going into my fourth year um, like I said I worked for her at Princeton I'm working for her now at UNC I have to be willing to challenge her if I see it's fit um, I'm really lucky because we've built the relationship where we challenge each other. Um, and so if there's something that I feel really strongly about, it is, I should challenge her on that. Um, and I think a lot of black people are really tired right now. So I then encourage your white allies to challenge your head coach for you. Um, that way you don't have to do the work. And, and it's it's policing within your own structure. And so um, that's that's really important to me. And, and as more and more of my coaching friends reach out and they send me messages and I'm super grateful um, and they say things like, you know, you've always been willing to challenge me in this area. Well, this is the cookout. Like, this is what I helped prepare you for. Here we are, come to the cookout and, and help us help us donate um, so i just think i think being willing to challenge each other and and provide your student athletes the resources so that their impact is larger than just a tweet is is what i say and, megan i i i've i've loved watching um your career obviously as a player and then and then as a coach and and just your your development into a woman in in the sense of being able to do what you just did Right. One, you're you're explaining not only your experience, but but now some actionable steps. Right. I'd like to kind of pull back a little bit in the sense of, you know, think of yourself as a player. I mean, you, you or your career, but you, you went to Nebraska. Right. Um, you go to North Carolina. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, because I, I, I I'm going to go back a little bit. I don't I think coaches need to understand what you are going through to then understand what what steps and what actions they can be there for you right and, and i think i think i'd like i'd like you to ex just express that you know like what it, what was your mindset going to nebraska i mean like were you scared what did you need from your coaching staff did you get it when you started your career and, and go to north carolina we we know the the legislator at legislature at, at north carolina they i mean they're thinking a certain way right and so can you express what, or, or teach us as coaches, what do players need from us? Yeah, so um, it's interesting. We always take a walk and we were taking our walk today and I was thinking about this because I think that um, my mother, bless her heart, she's an amazing woman and would do anything to protect me from anything. I mean, the biggest mother bear and she did that for most of my young adult life. So I didn't actually understand racism to the magnitude that it existed until I went to college. Um, Nebraska is a predominantly white institution, um, Lincoln, Red State, um, and I was a young, at the time, confused sexually <laughs> black girl who was just trying to find her way. Um, I actually 
still don't think I fully understood it until um, our football team, something occurred on the field that the fans disagreed with. And it had to do with a black player. Um, and the tweets and hate that came from that really divided our university in a way for about a year. Um, and so that was kind of my first look at like, do they value me as a person or do they value me as just the girl they see on the court? And I think a lot of your black student athletes feel like that, especially in places like the South or, you know, the red, red Midwest. And as they're trying to navigate, they just need to know you have their back um, and that you're willing to listen and that there's actions following the listening. So, you know, when I was at Princeton with Courtney, um, there was a bunch of race issues happening. And I said, we just need to talk about it. We don't say anything. You don't say anything. We go into a room and have a full-blown open discussion. Um, and at that time, we didn't know half of our kids' political views because you're at Princeton, right? Like you have top to bottom, kids who have low income, kids who have super high income. Um, and so it, it was really a, a big step, I think, for me understanding how the environments that I wanted to be a part of in this profession. And that is open, authentic. You cry with us, you laugh with us, and you know that we support you. Um, and so I think that was really telling um, and allowed me really the space to grow myself um, and be willing to have tough conversations and support our players through whatever that looks like. So I think the main thing is just be there, be authentic, because kids can see right through that. Um, if you're tweeting now and you've never had a deep discussion about their family, it's really hard for them to believe in you right now. And so you're, you're playing from behind. Um, so in order to catch up, you need to check in frequently and you just need to be authentic and check on them, support them and support the collective that they come up with as, as these issues continue to evolve. What do you, I mean, Kate, you're in a little bit different situation, obviously, you know, your, your experience as a player, but as a coach, like what's your, um, I guess, reaction to what Megan said and and, and um, how important that is to, to foster the relationships even to a deeper, more understanding level with your team. Um, you know, Megan started by talking about her mom and, and I'll do the same. I was raised by a, a social worker, social activist. And so it's something, it's, it's something that I have been fortunate to um, have ingrained in me from a young age. Um, and it's, going to be a process the rest of my life. Like I said, it's not a destination that you ever reach, but it's something that I've always been in tune with and um, passionate about. Um, and so when I played and then now coaching, um, I think it's important to, like Megan said, make sure that I'm not just pretending like everybody's experience is the same and, oh, I've been where you are and I'm not going to be that coach. Um, and I never want my 
kids to think this is some type of a transactional relationship. Um, so uh, for me, I think I coach because I want to be a positive influence in their life and make a positive impact. And a big part of that is recognizing our differences and honoring their stories and where they came from. Um, they need to know that I care about that before I ask them to do any type of drill or, or learn any type of play. They need to know that I see you and I want to listen to you and I care about you. Um, and so those are things that I think have been an evolution over my career and I'm still learning. Um, I think I have always tried to be a little bit more of like the stoic coach, but I'm, I'm learning lately that I think sometimes being vulnerable is really important with the kids, especially now, you know? And so that's something that's still changing for me and that's important for them. We had a team call on Monday and one of our girls, uh, she had went to a protest in Greensboro on uh, the Saturday and she was telling a story about why she decided to go and um, this, this white student you know, threatening her and she was in tears and she was crying and I was basically crying. And, and five years ago, I think I would have just like really tried to like hold it together because you think as a coach, you have to be this strong person. But I think that there is a lot of power in the vulnerability and I don't ever want them to feel like they can't be that way. And so that's been an evolution of, of mine, especially right now, more than ever, we need to let our kids be vulnerable and show them that we're not afraid to be the same. Um, but again, I just, I think honoring our differences and being genuinely um, interested and acknowledging that is important and not to pretend, don't pretend like we're all the same because we're not. And you're doing a disservice um, by pretending that and don't play the ignorant card. Like I said, it is our duty to educate ourselves and we're not going to have all the answers, but you have to establish a baseline so that you don't contribute unintentionally to hurting them, even with whether it be comments or you know microaggressions, things like that. It might not be intentional, but it's our duty to establish some type of a baseline. Um, and everybody's coming from a different place. Like I said, I'm, I'm lucky that I, I, this has been a conversation in my family since I was born and I'm still learning. And so other people, maybe you grew up in a super racist family, it's possible. And here you are in women's basketball, you have a lot of ground to cover. And again, this is gonna be a lifetime evolution for all of us, coach all of us white coaches. Uh, and it's something we need to be in tune with and, and we need to get passionate about it. As passionate as we are about the X's and O's, we need to be passionate about this because the people executing the X's and O's deserve that. It, the way you talked about that, the vulnerability, you guys talk open and authentic communication and you know the, the fact that ignorance is a choice. You know, you're, you're just putting your head in the sand and you don't wanna deal with it. Uh, it makes me think back to a story where I, I was coaching in a community that wasn't very diverse. And, you know, a couple of my black players had, uh, you know, been out with some friends and they ended up at a bar and they were essentially verbally attacked. Um, and, you know, I get the phone call because, you know, the police are involved and, you know, I'm an assistant coach at the time and they're, you know, one of their teammates was like, can you come down here? And I said, absolutely. And come to find out that the, the issue um, was that they were verbally attacked multiple times um, by a white girl um, and they were minding, you know, the two young women were minding their own business. They even moved away from the, the girl to, to avoid conflict. Uh, but unfortunately that was the aggression came from somewhere else. And, you know, so the police were called and, you know, 
and I found myself going down there and, you know, your first thoughts as a coach, especially a young coach, especially a white coach thinking, oh my gosh, why the hell are my kids in a bar? Why are they doing this? Why are they doing that? And the more that I understood the whole situation and the people, I had a conversation with the police officer who was also white. And he said, look, he goes, I, you know, you can take your kids home with you. Don't worry about it. It's fine. And my, you know, and, and they were, you know, they were distraught and I, and I agreed with them 100%. And I asked him specifically, I was like, will this person be charged with a hate crime? Because in my opinion, that's all that it was. It was nothing about anything other than her hating them for no reason other than, and she was projecting that onto them again for no reason. Um, unfortunately it didn't get to that point, but again, my, my, my initial response was, Oh my gosh, they're in trouble. And then my secondary response was, you guys, I don't blame anything that you've done. You haven't done anything wrong. You stood up and protected yourself in a situation that you needed to. And, you know, that's, that's the end. You know, if you need to talk more about it, I will be here, but we're not, there's nothing else that's going to happen. You know, you're, you're good. Just go home, get some rest and, you know, we'll talk about it some more. So I don't know if that's me being an ally in that moment. Uh, I, I'd like to think it was, but you know, it wasn't a thought, you know, it wasn't a, a, a it was just as wrong. And I don't know if there's enough of that happening now where people, white people are saying, look, that's wrong. Like regardless of, of who you know or how you know them, it's wrong. Um, so I guess I, I don't, you just made me think of that story, but we talk about what you said, the transactional versus trans, transformational quite often. And that's something that we've talked about on the show. And how much do you think your head coach's viewpoint on that transformational versus transactional, you know, meaning doing the job to create better people versus doing the job to get wins, to get more money. How much of an effect does that have on, you know, the trickle down to your players like in this, in this as a backdrop and with race as a backdrop? Yeah. I mean, I think that that's everything. Your, your head coach has to be intentional. Um, even about the way that they're talking. I, I was on, um, a, I wasn't on the panel, but I was watching a panel the other day and, and a head coach said, um, you know, this injustice stuff. And I, she didn't even realize it. And so, and she was white. And it was this moment where I was just like, these are the moments. These are the moments that matter because you, your head coach has to be intentional, well, intentional about every tweet, about every follow-up, about every conversation that's had individually with these players. Um, and it starts at the top because it also trickles down to the way that your assistant coaches treat each other. Have, have you as a white assistant checked on your black assistants and your black support staff? Have you as a white support staff checked on your black assistants, your black sport, your black head coach? Um, the way that your head coach exemplifies is what the rest of your team is going to follow. Um, and that's why I also said, like I said in the other earlier, it's also your job to challenge your head coach because they might be unaware of things and, and, like she said, it is our duty to be aware, to be intentional, to be knowledgeable, because we are guiding young women into what is going to be the rest of their life. Um, so I think I think it means everything. Yeah, and I, I think as as assistants, 
we need to be asking those questions during the interview process. I will not work for somebody that morally we are light years apart because at the end of the day, I love basketball, but I'm here for these kids. And so if we are disagreeing on how to handle their well-being, I just can't work there. And so I think that's the other part. And if you work for someone like that and either haven't spoken up or haven't left, then you're complicit too. And so I think just in the hiring process, that is something that I care about. Um, and I think if you work for someone that treats it more like a transactional thing, or you know that they don't really care about racial issues and we're in women's basketball, that's not the person for me. Um, and I hope that other coaches can think like that because I'll be honest, and I, that head coach doesn't deserve a very good assistant then because you're in it for the wrong reasons and you care about the wrong things and they should find their way out of the game. And that's, you know, that's how I feel. So um, I think the, the transactional part has got to be addressed, discussed and um, done so early on. And, and I hope that those people that are trying to ignore this or can't wait for this to be over need to, you know, hopefully they weed out of the profession because this is a conversation that can never stop. Yeah, I think in that same token, we, we've had people come up to us a lot about how vocal we are on our social medias. Um, and just like, wow, aren't you scared you're going to get jobs? You're not going to get jobs because of it. Because we talk about gay rights, we talk about black rights, we talk about, uh, you name it, things that we are passionate about, we talk about on our channels. And to her point, people have got to get to a place where they stand for something. If you do not accept me as someone who is a vocal lesbian, black female, how do I work for you? Because when things like this come up, how am I able to have hard conversations with you? How are we able to move the needle forward for our team if I can't even tweet Black Lives Matter? And so I just think there has to be more courage in our profession to talk about the shit that matters to you. Because that's also the piece that connects with our players. Our players know that I believe in women empowerment, that I've been on the front line of the women's marches, that I've donated to the women's marches. They know that I care about black lives because I am a black woman, because I know their struggle, because we talk about it. And so I just think, I think that in this, in every profession, people shy away from who they are to fit their company, their corporate, their, and we have to stop doing it because that's part of the, that's part of why we're here. <laughs> um, and especially in this profession, when you're dealing with young people, I mean, they have to see that they can be empowered and be accepted as, as they are empowered. I, I, before you go, Gav, I just want to say, like, you, you hit it right on the point. Like, like I think people look at it as you stepping outside the box or being abnormal, and you're not. You're just being who you are and authentic. And what we consider normal is skewed. You know, it's skewed in a direction. So I, I don't, you know, it, it, it's skewed in a white direction. So everything is supposedly different. No, every everything is everything is unique. Everyone is everyone is unique. So there's no 
to think that way is 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 closing. You know, it, you're 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 only looking here instead of seeing a, a bigger picture. Um, I do appreciate the things that you guys are saying. These are fantastic points. Yeah, I'd like to just kind of add on before I come back with a question, but um, I agree with everything you all just said. I think it's this time right now that we are in, it's revealing kind of what's in your heart to a lot of people and what you're passionate about. Um, and it's going to have a rippling effect how it relates to our sport with recruiting, um, with players already on your team. Like if you're not having these conversations, the you're going to get a consequence by being silent. You know what I mean? If you've got to be able to be there for the people that are in you know, your program. And um, I do want to, uh, if Megan, if you could speak a little bit more on, because I think it's very important and we've touched upon here on this show a few times about the mental health component, not only amongst our student athletes, but even amongst our coaching staff and our support system, support staff uh, within our program. But it, you know, it was made uh, very evident to me with our team Zoom call, you know, that, you know, I fell short uh, on reaching out to a couple of people just to check in on them, you know, assuming that they were okay. Um, I assumed wrong. And so immediately after the zoom call, like I called and apologized and I'm like, you know, the love is there. What's in my heart and who I'm passionate about that's there. And I want to make sure that it is very important. And you touched on it a little bit, but I'd love for you to um, kind of dive a little bit deeper in terms of the importance of checking in, on your on your black coaching staff members, on your your black athletes, on on your friends, colleagues, um, just in general, it is so important to check in, um, and it just definitely has some you know benefits, support, but it also has some consequences. Could you speak a little bit more on that? Yeah, I think to start, it's just offering perspective. Um, why black people are exhausted, and for instance, yesterday I went for a walk in our park. It's a mile around the whole thing. I normally go in this part that is more foresty and wooded. There's not really as much of a trail. I didn't feel like I could do that. I circled and I saw three young white girls doing TikToks in the park. My entire walk I kept looking over my shoulder. I had white people pass me and not even acknowledge my existence as if I wasn't there, a complete ghost. Put their head down, keep walking. I go into a store, I'm making eye contact with everyone trying to figure out who, where do you stand in all of this? Because it's surrounded us now. It's, on your, it's when you open your phone, it's when you turn on your TV, it is everywhere. That is why we're tired aside from this fight has been happening far before this moment. <laughs> um, so just to give some perspective of why black people need to take the time right now. Um, but for me, I think I'm still balancing it. I think it's really hard for me to just turn off my social media because that's now where I get a lot of my information. And so I, again, I'm teetering this, this feeling that I'm feeling of, I want to be informed, but I'm tired. I really want to know what's going on, but I don't think I can take any more. I just cried. 
And so um, I think one is just looking inside yourself to figure out what centers you. I think in terms of uh, people checking on one another, um, I can definitely say that I feel really different when black people check on me versus when white people check on me. Um, and a lot of people that I've spoken to have felt the same. Um, I think I also have a really difficult time with people who are checking on me who I haven't heard from in four years. Um, so I say that to say, I like being checked up on. I just hope that people are doing what they say they're doing beyond the checkup. Um, it's really nice to feel supported by my community, whether that's black, white, but if you're not taking action, what is the point of checking up on me because you're not helping me and all of the black community push forward. Um, so I think it's I think it's difficult. I think it's a really hard balance. I think that if you're checking up, purely check up. Um, there's some conversations that I've had over the past couple weeks of just trying to help inform people. And I think that that's hard right now. I think that you you're putting a lot on the expectation that your black friends are supposed to be informing you through this time. Um, that's not their responsibility. And some people will do it because they're really nice and other people will tell you, here are some resources, figure it out yourself. And other people just won't respond. So I think it's also being cognizant of like, it is not my job to inform you or what I like to say, I'm not gonna handhold you through your privilege or your racism. It is your job to do your diligent work. Um, I have had a lot of conversations up until this point trying to help inform people and I'm just pretty tired now. So um, I think understanding that piece uh, as, as you navigate through being white allies and supporting and it's just really, you know, it's, it's everyone else's turn to do the informational work piece. And it's our turn to stand or donate or cry right now. I think, you know, we were talking about this this morning. It's nice to check on people, but I, you know, I try to challenge myself. I make this an action rather than, than words. So are you checking in just like, Hey, checking on you to do that and take the next step. If it's with a colleague and say, like, what can I do to take stuff off your plate at work? You know, because it, black people are tired, they're exhausted. And it's probably for some people impossible to even muster up the energy to get out of bed when you turned on your TV this morning and saw people that look like you getting shot and beat and tear gassed, right? So what can I take off your plate right now? Because I think for some coaches, the last thing they're thinking about is, you know, oh, these game contracts I got to get going or this or that, you know, whatever tasks, like, what else can I do? And that's a small thing, but it's a small action rather than just, hey, how are you? Or, you know, so again, I, I keep challenging myself and, and other other folks, like, how can we make this an action word? Um, and I think also being mindful of, as Megan said, 
stop putting the burden on black people to educate us. Don't text your one black friend and ask, what should I say to my team? Or uh, what should I say to these you know, folks here? Like, do your own research first. And it's not to say that you shouldn't ask questions or want to listen, but there's a difference, you know? And if it's your person you haven't heard from for four years, and then they're like, hey, how should I? That means you don't know many black people. And that's also a problem. <laughs> so I think just being mindful of, um, you know, the, the good intent to check on, on people, but not placing a burden on them to talk about things that they might not feel like talking about right now. And, um, and so I think just being mindful of, of the approach is really important. Uh, we're getting some engagement uh, from this dialogue uh, and, and we wanna leave time to answer some of the questions that, that are being asked, but um, before we shift, I, I have one question that, that I'd like to just talk about. And I think it sets up the questions that we're, we are seeing that are coming in. Um, I, I think as a, as a non-black white um, coach, you know, I, I was raised Catholic, right? So, so we, I was raised with sin. I was raised with uh, understanding that you, you have to kind of repent and go through a penance um, so to speak. And, you know, I, my, my coaching route took me to Southeast Kentucky and uh, we weren't, we weren't recruiting. Uh, I mean, we weren't winning the Kentucky kids. So where did we go? We, we went out of Kentucky and we brought a lot of players in and, and to, to my white privilege, I didn't check up on the, on the heart. I didn't check up on the mind at the time. And, and I was called out later, later on uh, from players saying, you know, you, you weren't fully there. And, and that was hard to hear. But I think as a coach, you have to go through that so that then you can serve. And, and you know, Megan, if you can talk about, you know, I think there needs to be real, real action because unfortunately this becomes a political issue and it shouldn't be a political issue. However, we have to educate our players how to play the political game. We have to educate not only staffs and departments but athletes, what is the route to changing policy? What is the route of putting pro-black candidates in office? I mean, this is one of the, this is why I wanna run for office. I mean, many people know this is why I run, wanna run for office is because I don't see the changes, right? And so talk to us about what, what can it look like? Like this educational piece, we talk about like, you know, non-black coaches, we gotta do our own Part, our own education, our own our own understanding and whatnot. But what are we doing for our players so that then they become activists, then they become positive stewards of the community because they can change the community, right? Grassroots wise. Um, where should this go while we have them for the one, two, three, four years that we have it? Because, you know, I was on, on one of the most powerful discussions last night and, and one coach said, you know, recruits are watching, parents are watching, and they're going to start asking, where were you during this? What was your stance? And so I think we have to hear that, but how do we shape it to then create a movement that can actually move? Yeah. <laughs> I've also thought about this because I keep hearing, like you just said, watching, parents are watching. And I think that's part of the problem. 
recruits are watching and parents are watching, thus I have to make a statement. This has to become embedded in your program as who you are, not as a result that everyone is now watching. Uh, so I think the piece is, is if you really want to impact change, have you gotten your players to register to vote? If not, creating a session outside of practice, outside of, and you can call it whatever you want. I know you guys have like the G lab, which she can touch on that deals with things that are completely off the court. You create those leadership programs to teach your players how to lead. And one step in leading is being informed. And so you can continue to send them articles as things come up and you can, you can, I think it's important that they see articles from both sides so that you're not forcing your own political views on them. Um, so I think you, you keep them informed by creating almost these labs outside of your practice time that are just committed to growing them as leaders. And then you discuss, hey, let's talk about policy change today. And it doesn't have to be a 45 minute segment, but a 15 minute segment so that they understand how they can initiate change. And you do, maybe you do 15 minutes one day, 20 minutes another day. Maybe you bring in a speaker from, you know, a department on campus. Um, as things start to get closer to election day and there's different, you know, rallies or I know at North Carolina, people have spoken on our campus, giving them access to that, being willing to step outside of your job duties and finding out those resources so that you can get your kids in those buildings. And then it is their choice to become a part of the change. And I think it's also valid to remind them of how they felt in that team discussion. Hey, if you guys don't wanna do this, that's fine. But I just remember that this is the conversation we had. So I'm providing you the resources to be a change. And here are those resources. We can keep discussing it. If you have questions, come to me. Um, so I think it's just creating space outside of your practices and all the other stuff we have to do to really allow your teams to become part of the change and giving them the resources so that they understand what change from the governmental level, you know, to your backyard looks like. Uh, and, and just quickly, Kate, because I, I want you to touch on that, that G lab. Um, I think that's the most important piece, Megan, what you just said is, is coaches are afraid because they think they have to go political. They don't. There is a process to become civic leaders. There's a process to become civically minded and, and avenues together. So yes, the end goal is to vote, but then what happens after the vote and what happens prior there, there is a route that we can help inform our athletes to become civically minded and just, just to provoke thought and then be allowed the opinion and the stance and the experience to then become their vote. But many times as coaches, we're taught to just be a coach, stay off those, stay off those, uh, those topics and those issues. Right. But those issues are so important to the lives that we're molding. I mean, just to be, just to create leadership isn't enough. Civic leadership is, is, it has to be part of those branches. So I appreciate you saying that because I think it goes a long way. 
Kate, I, you're, I, I cut you off, my bad. Uh, go ahead. <laughs> uh, well, I was just gonna say, I think um, particularly for white coaches, it's okay not to have the answers and we can't allow our white fragility to deter us from having these conversations or allowing the kids to have the platform. Um, I think as coaches, it is also our duty to help them find their voice and learn how to use their voice and empower that. Um, and again, that doesn't mean shoving your own political beliefs down their throat, but it's teaching them, it's okay to have this conversation and it's okay to have it with me. I'm, yes, I'm your coach, but I want to. I want you to use your voice. I want to hear what you have to say. I want us to talk about how we got to those points. I want to hear your journey. Um, we need to empower our players to use their voice. Uh, we need to encourage hard sessions amongst the, the teammates and with the coaching staff. Um, I think some coaches shy away from that because the weird power dynamic, it's not about that. Um, and we need to make sure that we are teaching our players how to use their voice because that's going to be important far after they graduate. Um, and, and again, that is for me why I'm in the profession. Um, so I think that's really important. The, the G Lab is something that our director of operations started. She's done an awesome job with it. And um, it's, as Megan said, it's kind of just um, a weekly thing for us to uh, kind of talk about things that have nothing to do with basketball. Um, so that they can be prepared for when basketball is is over. Um, obviously, right now we're not with them, but if we were, I think a lot of them would be um, discussing this and again giving them that platform and that safe space um, and and just kind of talking about it and and talking about what are some actions and some next steps and um, and you know what do you guys think we should be doing as a unit and as a staff? Our girls actually decided. Um, to collect money from their teammates and donate to an organization, which I was really excited about. They came up with that on their own. So again, just providing them that space, use your voices and talk to each other and talk to us and, and then let's take action together. Um, so we try to create those opportunities. It's been awesome. I, I think it's important that programs start to take a look at carving out a little bit of time to do things that don't have to do with basketball. Um, because again, our, give the girls space to use their voices and ask their questions and tell their stories. Yeah, I, I would agree with you 100%. And I think you guys touched on a couple of the things that we talked that, that you've seen out there that, you know, the uh, performance, the performance tweeting, the performance stuff like, oh, let me, you know, retweet this because whatever reason. Um, and there has been a little bit, but probably not enough. And, and Brian talked about it as well as understanding. Um, the, the it's one thing to vote, but it's understanding the right. You know, it, I think we get you get caught up with the national media because everything's so, you know, 24 hours a day. You get caught up with presidential elections and you forget that, you know, in the grand scheme of things, each one of us is probably affected by that at a very small level as opposed to the um, election process in our local, uh, in our towns, in our cities where we grew up or even where we currently live. Um, I think, Megan, you've talked about that a little bit, just some of the things that you've had to deal with just in your community. So um, I think when we've talked about that, it's, it's understanding and learning, and maybe that's a way for us coaches to, like you said in your G school, is to say, okay, here, here, you know, give the resources of, hey, here are the people that are up for city council in your town. You know, who do you think would be the best thing? And like we talked about is, 
then pushing some critical thought, you know, into why would you vote for a certain candidate or why do you think this is a good policy or because ultimately I think as basketball coaches and basketball players, the way the game is played, you have to think critically in, in short periods of time to make decisions that affect everyone. And sometimes I think if we could frame it in that way, that this small decision to vote for whomever affects a lot more people, just the same as your decision, you know, maybe not to go help your teammate affects our team in this bigger picture. So I don't, so I don't know, um, maybe talk about that and just kind of how we take these small things and, and build them into the bigger picture for everyone. I think uh, similar to how I talked about, you know, when we went for a walk, um, if, I, if I walk past you, acknowledging my existence is a small thing. It is a small thing that lets me know that you see me and makes me feel like we're on the same side. Does that make sense? So I think it, it that's a little bit bigger picture, but it, it's the same way that we coach them, right? Like if you do only 500 shots a day, your shot will get better. If you do only this, a day, but you do it every single day, you get better. Uh, it's the small things are the big things because the small things are who you are. So if you do a big thing and you tweet, but you don't do the other things, that's not good enough. If you only show up on game day and you're ready to go and you're dressed and you want to get in the game, but you haven't been to any practices, that's not good enough. Um, and that's just my expectation in life, my relationship. I heard from you in four years, but then you expect to come to our wedding. That wasn't good enough. <laughs> so um, I think it's just, it's a life lesson. The small things are the big things. The little steps are the big steps. And once we can get our players to understand that outside of the court, because a lot of them can actually understand that on the court at this point, um, but they don't understand it in life. If you make your bed every day, you're starting on the right foot. If you do these, if you eat right every day, then when you have your cheat meal, it doesn't really matter as much. It's like all of those things that you learn and you take on as an adult are things that we have to teach them now. Um, and so I think setting aside those that time off the court is so important. And even if it's just a conversation, even if you just leave it open one day, just like, hey, let's just talk. First person to bring up a topic, we'll go off of that. We can switch at any time. You're giving them the space for you to pour into them and for them to also pour into you, which is the most re rewarding part of the profession is, is those moments when you have those discussions and you hear them sound completely different than two years or two weeks ago. Um, and it's, it's the small things. Well, we, uh, we thank you guys for, for obviously telling your story, opening up to the world. Um, before we let you go, um, is there anything, you know, and, and Megan, you kind of touched on this just now, but like, is there any one lasting thought that you, that you, that you need from us that you need or want uh, us to know and, and how we can possibly be there for you? Um, 
you know, and be there for your circle. Um, but like anything you want to leave, leave with. Um, I think for me, it's just look inward. Um, in order for all of this to change, everybody has to look inside. And I don't mean that in like a rainbows and butterflies kind of way. I mean, you have to look at the ugliest parts of you the parts of you that didn't even know existed, the white privilege that you didn't know you had, um, and really look at it. <laughs> look at it in the mirror and unpack it and you know, step outside of yourself to find resources to help unpack it um, and challenge each other. Like, I just, I really, I, don't want people to shy away from the hard conversations right now. And I think that's really easy. It, you have to challenge your white friends when they make a mistake, when they misspeak, because it's not just on black people's shoulders. And um, we, we owe it to everyone at this point. Where our country is, is so divided and painful. Watching the news is painful. It brings you to tears. Um, and remember that feeling when you're walking in a store and you walk past someone and acknowledge their existence. Acknowledge that we all are here existing and value every person. Um, and that's, that's all. Well, thank you both. Um, you guys are both beautiful people. Uh, we are so happy for you both. And know that you can call upon us for anything. Okay. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you. We will be back.